I wonder if you remember what life was like before cell phones. These days, we hardly leave the house or go an hour without checking it. We message friends across town. We FaceTime family across the country. Emails daily, hourly flood our inboxes. Such is our age, one of constant communication. But it wasn't always this way, right? Before modern technological innovation, friends and families would go weeks, months, and even years without hearing from one another. Right? We all tend to get impatient sometimes. You know, we send an urgent text message and somebody doesn't respond right away and we're like, what, what could they possibly be doing and not checking their phone right now? We forget that empires were once ruled by ships that would take months to cross the ocean seas. This morning, we're going to be considering a group of people that had spent four centuries waiting to hear from their beloved. See, this nation had received wonderful promises, and yet most of them remained unfulfilled. They longed to hear words of comfort and encouragement. This people is Israel, and they've waited 400 long years, devoid of God's prophets, lacking any word from the heavens. They've been waiting for God to finally come and fulfill his promises, accomplish all that he'd said he would do. 400 years of darkness was about to be met with the blazing light of God's glory in Christ. So with that in mind, I'd encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 1. We'll be in verses 1 to 13 this morning as we begin our exposition of Mark. What does that mean when we say that we're going to, we preach expositionally or where we're beginning an exposition of Mark? Well, simply that for the next few months, we're going to walk kind of chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the gospel of Mark, where the, the goal at least is that the main point of the passage is the main point of my sermon. So this will be the normal practice of Trinity Church of Bedford because we believe it's, it's God's word that gives life. So it's not my pet interests or hobby horses that, that we need. We need to hear from God. So rather than kind of majoring on topical preaching, which is where I, the preacher, think in my study, huh, I wonder what I want to talk about this week. Instead, we're going to major on expositional preaching, where we're just going to kind of walk through the Bible so that we hear all of God's word, the whole counsel. Sometimes we'll be going verse by verse, such as what we'll be doing in Mark over the next few months, where it's kind of very minute and detailed. At other times, an expositional series or sermon could be over a larger chunk of scripture. So you might do, you know, six sermons in the 66 in depth or as an overview The goal is always the same, to hear from God, and so that by the end of, you know, 11.30 on Sunday afternoons, we will have heard not Scott's thoughts, but God's word. So it's with that in mind that we begin our series in the book of Mark. Mark was written approximately 20 to 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, which was after most of Paul's epistles had been written. Mark is, the, the believed to be author, was an assistant to Peter. And so Peter is kind of the the first-hand witness to the the things that we'll see. Some of the major themes in the Gospel of Mark include Jesus' identity, suffering in the Christian life, 
what it means to follow Christ. This morning, as I've said, we'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. We'll have two sections, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Because Jesus is God's long-promised Son, we should greet his arrival with confession and repentance. Because Jesus is God's long-promised Son, we should greet his arrival with confession and repentance. So read with me Mark 1, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals And the angels were ministering to him. Amen. Well, our first section is found in verses 1 to 8, entitled, John's Baptism and Preaching. You'll note that verse 1 is kind of like the title page of the book. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark doesn't feel the need to give Jesus' birth narrative or anything about his ancestry, He marks the beginning of the gospel with Jesus' baptism. And he gets right to the point, doesn't he? He tells us this whole book is about the good news. That's what gospel means. It's the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so, friends, I don't know if you like spoilers. I don't know if you're like me and you, you don't like it when your spouse or your friend elbows you in the middle of a movie and says, oh, you know what's going to happen, right? I don't know if you like those detective novels where you're reading through, trying to figure out who did it and, you know, all that. But Mark apparently wasn't into surprises. You know, Mark gives us the bluff, the bottom line up front. If there's anything you take away from the 16 chapters of Mark, take Mark 1-1 away from it. Because right here in chapter 1, verse 1, Mark gives us the answer to the central question that drives the entire narrative of the gospel. Namely, who is Jesus? That's why we've entitled the sermon series this, because it's Mark's big question. It's the question the demons will try to answer, 
his disciples will answer, will wrestle with, the crowds will wonder, the Pharisees will oppose, and that Jesus himself will reveal. It's literally the question that orients every chapter in this book. Some people will respond rightly and others wrongly to Jesus. And yet while the characters in the story are still trying to figure it out, we the readers, we already know. That's kind of one difference as we begin the Gospel of Mark to keep in mind. We know something that the characters don't know because Mark's told us in Mark 1, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the Christ? Well, Christ simply means anointed one. It's a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So this term comes from the Old Testament, where God would anoint the king over Israel. So in 1 Samuel 10, we read, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him, and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord. This anointing came to be so emblematic of Israel's kingship that when people referred to the future coming king, they simply referred to the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And so to say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that He is Israel's long-awaited, long-promised king. Because a thousand years earlier, in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord had promised to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so kind of since then, Israel's been looking for that Davidic king, that Davidic son, whom God would pronounce to be his son. You know, for about 600 years, Israel had bad Davidic kings. And then for about 400 years, Israel's had no Davidic king. They had been under Greek and Roman rule. And so all this was changing with Jesus' advent. We see also in verse 1 that Mark declares Jesus to be the Son of God. You know, friends, this is pointing to the absolute uniqueness of Jesus. He is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, light from light, true God from true God. He is God made flesh and to come to dwell among us. He's Emmanuel. Uh, This is Mark's perspective on Jesus. And we'll see in just a few verses that it's God's perspective on Jesus as well. You notice that the action really starts there in verse 2. We read, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared. So it's kind of like a a long run-on sentence, like, as it's written, and then it tells you what was written, John appeared. This quote's actually part from Isaiah and part from Malachi, and and it serves to highlight the role of John the Baptist. It was common practice to quote the, the larger, the more kind of significant of the two prophets. So instead of saying Isaiah and Malachi, Mark just writes, Isaiah says. And in short, Mark's point is that John's arrival 
is the fulfillment of God promising to send a messenger who prepare the way. The language that's used is one of a, a town crier preparing people for a coming king, right? So if you're king traveling throughout the country, um, you don't want to be enter into a town, that, a village that's under your dominion and you know, have nobody there. You send a messenger ahead of time, and that messenger goes and says, make way for the king. The king is coming. Prepare yourself for the king, you know, sweep off your doorstep, come with palm branches, come with, you know, gifts and food and, you know, get ready. The king is coming. And so it is with John the Baptist. Israel's king, the Christ, is arriving. But again, it's not just Israel's human king, but it's Israel's God. It's the son of God. You notice that in verse 3. Look there. We read, prepare the way for whom? Prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh. This is the, the, he's quoting specifically from a passage where God himself was coming to his people. The coming king is no less than the Lord, Yahweh, God himself. And so just as verse 3 says this messenger will be in the wilderness, John came in the wilderness. Uh, Just as verse 3 says he'll be crying out, verse 4 says that John was preaching. You know, John's a little bit like the the opening act for the stand-up comedian, right? The opening act isn't the point. The opening act exists for the main act. And so if this king is coming and John the Baptist is the herald, saying, make way for the king, you know, what, is, what does that look like exactly? We, we read at the end of verse 3, make his paths straight. Does this mean that John is going to break out his, his shovel and he's literally going to fill potholes to, to make the path? I mean, like, what? Is he going to get some paintbrushes, fix up the wilderness, make it look a little more accommodating to Jesus? What, what does it mean to prepare the way for Jesus? I think Luke actually gives us the answer. Luke 1, verses 16 and 17 says that John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So it's John's job to get the people ready for Jesus's appearing. And we see how he does that in verses 4 and 5. Look there. As it's written, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him or were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. In short, John did two things. He baptized and he proclaimed. And the people responded in two ways. You see it. At the end of verse 4, they were repenting of their sins. And at the end of verse 5, it says they were confessing their sins. To confess your sins is to name your sins, to recognize them as sins. It's to cease from covering them up or hiding them, to stop justifying them and explaining them away. You know, it's the opposite of what Adam and Eve did. 
Do you remember what happened? They ate the fruit God told them not to eat. God comes to Adam, says, have you eaten of the fruit I told you not to eat? And what's Adam's response? The woman you gave me. Right? So he's like doubly blame shifting. It's your fault, God. And if it's not your fault, then it's at least her fault. But it's definitely not my fault. Well, that's a case study in what not to do. Then to confess our sins is to recognize our sins and to recognize that they're an offense against a holy God. So you remember in Psalm 51, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he had murdered Uriah, after he had sinned against the whole nation by leading them in this wickedness, do you remember what he prayed in Psalm 51? He said, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Friends, David wasn't denying that he had sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and the nation. No, he wasn't denying that at all. He was saying that the, the primary person that he has offended and sinned against is God, though. We can sin against God in the things that we, we do and then we things that we don't do. We can sin against God in our thoughts and attitudes. We can sin against God with our words. We can sin against God with our hands and our actions. And so the first step in reconciliation with God is to confess, to recognize the ways that we've sinned against him and fallen short of his glory. I know we talked about this just a, a few weeks ago, but again, it's kind of right here in the text. This is why we have a weekly confession of sin. Because our natural temptation is to be like Adam and Eve, right? Like, I see it in my kids, and I see it in my own heart. We all have this desire to prove to the world, and to ourselves, and to God, that we are morally righteous. We virtue signal on social media we privately critique those who are not as socially minded or personally holy as us. And we are loath to admit when we are wrong. And yet, brothers and sisters, confession is to be a normal part of our Christian life. We're to regularly confess to God, but you know, let me also encourage you to confess your sins to one another. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. I just love that pairing. Confess and pray, right? It's not just like this morbid introspection. Confess and then pray, knowing that God will forgive you, asking for his help in fighting temptation. That's the whole reason we're in a church, that we could do that with one another, supporting and loving one another. Sin is like mold. It loves the darkness. It wants to be hidden in the dark. And when you bring it to the light, it dies. When you bring it out into the light of God's presence, either indirectly or directly, you know, immediately going to him, but also indirectly, as you go to brothers and sisters and saying, brother, sister, help me. I, I'm struggling in this area. Help me, Father, put it to death. Uh, that's what we confess, and that's the second thing that these people were doing. They were repenting. You see that in verse 4. This was a baptism of repentance. 
So if confession is recognizing past sins, repentance is resolving to turn away from future sins. Confession is recognizing past sins, while repentance is resolving to turn away from future sins. You know, because it's no good to say to the Lord, God, I'm sorry for robbing that bank. I'm really sorry. Turn around and do it again. No, true confession is always marked by true repentance. You know, this is something we've been going over in the catechism with our kids lately. To the question, what is repentance? The answer is to have sorrow and hatred from sin, for sin, and to turn away from it. Just as confession is a normal part of the Christian life, so too Martin Luther said, the whole of the Christian life is to be one of repentance. So this is not just a one-time deal. You know, as a Christian, you become a Christian, whew, glad I got that repentance part over with. No, it's something that's going to be ongoing in our Christian life because we're always going to have sins to turn away from, aren't we? And notice the end result of all this at the end of verse 4. John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is, John's preaching and baptism was a promise that if you confessed your sins and you repented of them, you would be forgiven. And so, friends, make no mistake. If you would be forgiven of your sins, you must confess and repent before God. There is no pardon for the unrepentant. You cannot continue to love and indulge your sin and be forgiven of those sins. We are saying, way, change the fact that repentance is necessary for salvation and the forgiveness of your sins. But this doesn't mean that confessing and repenting in any way become the works that ground or merit or earn our forgiveness. Don't hear me saying that, right? Repentance is necessary, but it is not the grounds of our forgiveness. So if I, you know, if I steal a million dollars from you, because you have that sitting in the bank account, if I steal a million dollars from you and I blow it on the lottery, you know, it's good if I come to you and I confess my sin. Dave, I am so sorry, man. I stole a million dollars from you. Please forgive me. But of course, confession without repentance means nothing. So if I go ahead and steal your second million dollars that's in the bank account, well, that doesn't do me any good. So not only do I need to confess past sins, I need to resolve to turn away from future sins. And yet... Let's say I do both. I confess and I repent. I won't do it again, I promise. Does that return the money that I've lost? Does that mean that I am any less in debt to you? No. Confession and repentance are the necessary prerequisites for forgiveness, but they don't earn or deserve that forgiveness. No, we are forgiven because of God's grace. 
It's entirely of mercy. To be humble and contrite to, to those who hate their sin, to those people, God does offer forgiveness, but it's not because we deserve it. It's because of who he is. He is gracious and merciful. And in all this, with sins being confessed, repented of, and forgiven, well, it's symbolized by baptism. That's what it was for John. That's what it is for us, wherein sin is washed away. You see in verse 6, the spotlight back on John the Baptist and his strange attire. You know, what's going on with this? Well, it's actually a direct reference to 2 Kings 1, which describes Elijah by saying, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. So Mark is explicitly, you know, kind of quoting from the 2 Kings text. And this is significant because Malachi 4, 5, in the second to last verse of the Old Testament, says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So do you see what's happening? John the Baptist is dressed up like Elijah, and that's significant because Malachi said Elijah would come right before the Lord visits the earth in salvation and judgment. John fulfills this, and it's for this reason that he says in verse 7, after me comes he who is mightier than I. Well, who, according to Malachi 4.5, is supposed to come after Elijah? Again, it's the Lord. After me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is the last and greatest prophet of the Old Covenant because he immediately precedes the coming king. And yet he is nothing when compared with how great the king is. For though John immersed people in water, the coming Lord will immerse people in the Holy Spirit. This idea was common in the later prophets because of Israel's abject failure to keep God's law. You know, it had become apparent even in Isaiah's day, before the exile, that God's people needed a new heart. They needed a new spirit if they were going to walk in obedience. So Isaiah 44 reads, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offering, on your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. Or in Ezekiel 36, which we talked about a few weeks ago, the Lord says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This was John's baptism and John's preaching. Uh, this, the reception of the Holy Spirit, what Christians have now upon faith, it's associated with baptism because baptism is the outward sign of the inward reality, right? You can't see when somebody receives the Holy Spirit but you can see when they're baptized. This is what John's ministry has all been about. You know, as he proclaimed that someone's coming who's greater than him, his ministry and message was not so much an idea or a command, but a person. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So let's turn to that now in verses 9 to 13. We'll see that ourselves in Jesus's baptism 
and testing. Verse 9 sets the stage by saying, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Nazareth was a small town in northern Israel. And so here this seemingly ordinary man shows up. But to identify with sinful Israel. And then we come to verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Friends, here the curtain gets lifted as it were, and we get a behind the scenes look on the triune God. Here we see God the Father anoint God the Son with God the Holy Spirit. And this is why Mark can so confidently proclaim in verse 1 that Jesus is the Son of God, because he has it on good authority. He has it on God's authority. The heavens themselves testifying audibly that Jesus is the Son of God. Just as we've seen throughout our passage, there are a number of Old Testament promises, promises and patterns and prophecies that Jesus is fulfilling here. So earlier in the service, we read Psalm 2, wherein God said to the Davidic king, you are my son. Jesus doubly fulfills this because he's eternally been God's son, according to his divine nature. And now as the Davidic king, he fulfills it. Uh, of, he fulfills the role of Davidic king, just as the Lord had said in 2 Samuel 7, of this coming king, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. So Jesus is the eternal son of God, and now he's the Davidic son of God. And this scene is also a fulfillment of Isaiah 42, verse 1. There we read, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. It's the same phrase, in you I'm well pleased. In whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. You will bring forth justice to the nations. And so again, notice how we see the three persons of the Trinity at work here. This passage is a great evidence against a doctrine known as modalism. Okay, so, so the doctrine uh, of modalism is a heresy which says there's, there's one God, but he kind of puts on different masks at different times of the day. So in the Old Testament, God appeared like the Father. In the Gospels, he appeared like the Son. And in Acts, in the church, he appears like the Spirit. He kind of just puts on a different mask for the different season. Well, one of the massive problems with this doctrine is that it makes no sense of passages like this one. Because if God is just putting on different masks, how is the Father speaking to the Son? How is the Spirit anointing the Son? How can the Son say all throughout the Gospels, you know, he's praying to the Father? It just doesn't make sense if there is no Father, right? So we read earlier Article 1 of our Statement of Faith, which is a, a fairly standard Orthodox confession of who God is. He is the one God who has eternally existed in three persons. Second, notice also the love that the Father has for His Son. 
you know, friends, we're here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's not done anything impressive from a worldly perspective. He's not performed great miracles or feats. He's not yet gone to the cross in obedience to the Father. And yet, the Father says, you are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Friends, consider the, the love and the happiness of heaven as revealed just in this one verse. The Father has ever and eternally delighted in the Son. The Son has ever and eternally delighted in the Father. This love is animated by the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And it's this love that has been enjoyed forever. So when God created the world, he wasn't lonely. You know, God wasn't looking at it. He was not looking for fellowship and love because he already had it. Brothers and sisters, the little glimpses that we get of that love in this life are just a foretaste of that eternal love and joy and happiness that we will one day enter into. You know, when a groom beholds his bride, when a mother caresses her child, when a father picks up his son and swings him around, these are just little glimpses and foretastes of the heavenly love that we are headed towards. As Jesus said in John 15, as my father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a hope we have. What an anticipation we have. No matter the trials that we, we face in this life, that is the north star of our lives. That joy, that love, that fellowship, and that intimacy. That's where we're going. It's not because we're so righteous in and of ourselves, though, is it? This adoption into God's family, such that now we are God's sons and daughters, such that now God says of us, you are my beloved daughter, and you I'm well pleased. Well, friends, if you know anything of your own heart, you know it's not because we're so great. It's because Jesus is so great, and we are now in him. All that was his is now ours, because we've put our faith in him. Friends, if you have not yet trusted in Christ, oh, do so today. What greater love are you awaiting? Trust in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, and in his victorious resurrection, so that you could know and enjoy that love. Such was Jesus' baptism. We see now in our final two verses, Jesus' testing, or his tempting, Verse 12 reads, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. John prophesied that this coming one would baptize others with the Spirit. 
at Jesus' own baptism, we see him being filled and anointed with the Spirit. And the first thing the Spirit does is drive Jesus into the wilderness. Like, what's up with that? It's a summary account. And in short, the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness so that he can relive what Adam and what Israel went through. You'll recall how Adam was tested and tempted by Satan, and yet he fell into temptation. And Israel, well, they were tested in the wilderness, not for 40 days, but for 40 years. They roamed around grumbling against the Lord. Uh, They consistently fell to Satan's temptations. Both Israel and Adam are described in the Old Testament as the Son of God. And so here we see that Jesus, the true Son of God, came to succeed where they failed. Mark doesn't tell us the precise nature of the temptations, uh, but we do know that they were legitimately testing. So Hebrews 2.18 says, For because Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Brothers and sisters, when you are tempted by sin, do you know that Jesus experienced the same thing? When you are tempted to anxiety or fear or lust or pride or grumbling, self-seeking, anything else, Jesus was also tempted. And not just by a little bit of temptation. No, Satan himself opposed him. We should note, however, one difference between Jesus' temptations and the ones that we face. So when we are tempted, there is an external stimuli that kind of latches onto an internal desire to produce the temptation. So we see a nice car on TV, and we have this inward proclivity towards greed, and so we're tempted towards covetousness. Or there comes an unexpected medical bill, and we have this internal bent towards not trusting the Lord that leads to sinful anxiety. Well, it's not so with Jesus, right? He was totally pure and righteous and holy. So for Jesus, there was this external temptation, but there was no internal deviousness with which the devil could grab hold of him. There was no sinful self-centeredness that Satan could appeal to. Jesus is the only righteous son of God. And so verse 13 ends, he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Though Jesus was fasting and in the wilderness, though he was living with the wild animals and being tempted by Satan, yet God had not abandoned him. The father sent heavenly messengers for his comfort and encouragement. Though in the wilderness, Jesus where it was exactly where God wanted him to be. And so, friends, as we conclude, I wonder. I wonder what trials you're going through right now. In what ways has the Lord in the past, or perhaps even now, led you into the wilderness? Perhaps it's with your health, which seems to decline regularly. Or with your job as you struggle with boss or coworkers, uh, Perhaps it's your marriage or the fact that God hasn't given you a spouse. 
There are any number of wilderness testings and temptations that we all must go through. And yet, because we're followers of Jesus, this shouldn't surprise us. He went there, and so we will too. But he's not left us alone. As Jesus was compelled by the Holy Spirit, as he was filled with the Spirit, so too are we. As the Lord Jesus himself, as our compassionate and gracious high priest, well, as he was tempted, he's able to help us when we are tempted. No matter the testing and temptations that we face, we can rest assured that the words that God the Father spoke over his Son, with you, I am well pleased. Now, because of Christ, it is true even of us. Let's pray. Ways we are not worthy of the advent of your Son. Father, would you prepare us even for his second coming? Oh, when he will come and the heavens will once again be torn open, and he himself will come to judge the living and the dead. Oh, God, would you grant us faith and repentance? in light of that day. We thank you for the gift of forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the gift of adoption into your heavenly family, that we would know you and be drawn up into your love. Help us to live in light of that, to resist temptation, to rely upon your Holy Spirit through it all. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.